Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, August 23rd, 2015. May God use this as a blessing to you this day. Let us pray. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. My daughter Emily just left for her freshman year of college last weekend. She's going to be attending Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas. This is, uh, you've heard of it? Ah, there we go. I had never heard of it. I didn't know where it was. This is the picture that Jody took of her as she was leaving home for college, setting off on the big adventure. Now, I didn't know where Abilene Christian was. Uh, So here is a map of the great state of Texas. Abilene is almost smack dab in the middle. It's uh, about a three-hour drive west from Dallas-Fort Worth area, 181 miles to be exact. And one of the blessings for Emily was that she had the chance to meet her dorm roommate before getting to college. In fact, uh, I think it was about two or three weeks ago she found out who it was, and they've been Facebooking and Skyping and emailing and phone calling and This is uh, Jody and Emily with her roommate Danny and her mom and grandmother, and they got to uh, not only meet them but stay at their house last weekend before they went to school and go worship with Danny and and her family. Danny lives in Arlington, Texas, just outside of Dallas. They've already invited her to come home, uh, to Emily to come home with Danny any weekend she wants. She's even changed her meal plan from the seven uh, days a week meal to the five days a week, expecting to be traveling back and home. So it's quite a blessing for us. Last Monday was orientation day for the freshmen. Tuesday was dorm move-in day. So here's an action scene from Tuesday. (laughs) That's pretty much what college students do all the time, right? Just kind of in between classes, of course. Uh, So here's Danny and her mom and Emily and uh, Jody was taking the picture of helping them getting settled in. And Jody's job was to, you know, make sure she had the things she needs within reason for her dorm. Um, actually, both Ezra and Emily asked if mom would be the one to take them to college because they knew that mom would go and get them all the cool things for the dorm, right? And if it was me, I'd be like, no, you don't need that. Borrow that from a friend. Nope. That's why they have a common room down in the bottom of your dorm. You don't need, you know, but mom is uh, overflowing with abundance and grace. And so they had a great time. And then they said Goodbye leaving Emily all alone on the campus of Abilene Christian with 4,500 of her closest friends that she just made, right? So now both of our children have left uh, for college and beyond, and I've been told our lives will never be quite the same again. How many of you remember when your kids left home for the first time, yeah? Some of you, maybe even when your grandkids left home as well. There's that that feeling of excitement for them mixed with sorrow and sadness. That's the feeling I want us to come back to as we begin this parable in just a moment. Welcome to the sixth week in our sermon series on grace, Jesus' amazing parables. And we've been looking at parables which are simple stories with deep meanings, all centering around the issue of grace or God's unmerited love, favor, and blessing that comes to us Uh, Without a price, we don't earn it, we don't deserve it, it's just a gift. And Jesus told lots of parables over the course of his ministry. Today's parable is quite possibly, though, the most famous of all of Jesus' parables. Luke 15, beginning at verse 11. 
Then Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. We basically have three characters in this story. We have a father and his two sons. Now, it may not be immediately apparent, but the younger son's request is really quite outlandish and shocking. It's not shocking to want an inheritance. Like, who doesn't want an inheritance, right? But what's shocking is that he asked for the inheritance while his father is still alive. Because in order to get inheritance, someone has to die. That's kind of how inheritances work. Otherwise, it's called a gift, right? So really, what the son was saying to his father is, Dad, I wish you were dead. And then I got your stuff. That's kind of what he was saying. What a punch to the gut of any dad. But especially in Jesus' time, because not only was that an insult to the family in which it would have been uh, requested, but also to the entire community. You know the saying, it takes a village. That was especially true back in Jesus' day. Communities felt responsible for one another's children. So word would travel fast, and everyone around uh, this family's house would have known about the son's grievous insult towards his father, and likewise to them as well. I imagine all of them standing outside their houses, watching as he left this ungrateful, spoiled, rotten, disrespectful kid, leaving with his wad of cash, probably never to return. And maybe that's the first sign that this story is not going to be like another, any other story. Because the father actually gave in to his son's ridiculous demands. He didn't have to give his inheritance. He hadn't died yet. He wasn't required just because the son asked for it to split his estate among his children. It doesn't even say that the dad protested or offered a word of caution or gave, you know, one of those lectures. Well, before I give this to you, let me just say a few things. No, none of that is recorded in the parable. It just says that he divided his property among them. It's one thing to send your child off to college, right? Full of hope and excitement and anticipation of what the future may hold. It's another thing for your son or daughter to leave so unceremoniously as this one did. Can you even begin to imagine what feelings must have been going through this father's heart and mind? So the kid's plan was to leave for bigger and better things, right? He'd use the nest egg that he'd just been given from his obviously clueless father and make his mark on the world because the boy had plans. He had big plans. He was going to see the world. He was going to live the good life and enjoy every minute of it. But sometimes life doesn't turn out the way we plan it, does it? Such was the case in our story today. Sometime in the future, we don't know how long, the bottom fell out of the younger son and he lost it all. He woke up one morning and had a big cuff, cup of reality coffee. He was out of money, out of friends, out of food. He was in the midst of a terrible famine. He was working in a pigsty, feeding slop to pigs. Pigs, the untouchable animals of the Jewish faith. That was the only job he could get and they were eating better than he was. I imagine him sitting there in the mud, gazing up to the heavens and wondering out loud, where did it all go wrong? (laughs) It wasn't supposed to be this way, right? I had such great plans and potential. Now, that's when he decided, I got got to change. I got to go home. He knew he couldn't go back to be a son. He He had already burned that bridge when he insulted his father and the community. But maybe he thought, if I could go back and just 
get a job from my dad. If I could just work on the farm like some of the other workers, at least I'd have a place to live. The, the, the farm hands, the, the, the servants would live in separate quarters, not in the main house because that's just for family. But at least they had a place to live that was safe and he would have three meals. That was the plan. And he made up this, uh, this speech that he was going to give back and he kept rehearsing it on his way back. This is what I want to say to my dad to convince him to get me a job. Now, normally, what's the name associated with the story? It's the parable of the prodigal son. Right. But actually, Jesus didn't name his parables. He didn't give titles to his stories. The church over the ages uh, has found certain ones that we just gravitate to and give titles, like the prodigal son. Uh, But I think when we say the parable of the prodigal son, we miss the true focus of this parable. Jesus didn't begin by saying, there was a son who had a a brother and a dad. No, he says there was a father who had two sons. In her book, Words of Fire, Spirit of Grace, Kenyan-born United Methodist pastor Grace E. Matthew looks at the definition of the word prodigal. Webster's Dictionary says prodigal means extravagant, reckless, profuse, squandering, and wasteful. When prodigal is inward-looking, It's sinful in its self-indulgence, in its greed, and its selfishness. It's thinking only about oneself. But when prodigal, uh, so so the younger son, uh, how he sort of demanded his inheritance and then lost it all, that definitely would be seen as being prodigal. But prodigal also has another definition. When you think about it in in relating to another person, then it becomes quite radical. Prodigal is reckless in its welcome. It's overwhelming in its forgiveness. It means excessive, too much, extravagant, overflowing, unconstrained. Who is the prodigal in this story? The father. The father, think about it. Excessive, extravagant, overflowing, unconstrained. Having spent every day gazing out of his window, searching for any sign of his lost son, the father moves into grace-filled mode. He sees his son. He's the first to see him. He comes running down the pathway. Henri Nouwen says it might seem strange, but God wants to find me as much, if not more, than I want to find God. That's the prodigal father looking out the window. So losing all dignity of a man of means, the father in our story blasts out the front door. You see, in Jesus' day, grown men did not run. It was unbecoming. Unless they played softball, then maybe, maybe they ran. But in general, they would not run. Uh, and, but this father's not worried about that. He's so excited about his son. He sees him off in the distance. He comes running out the door and down the pathway, however long it took him to get to where the son was coming, most likely with his head bowed, shuffling his feet, rehearsing that speech that he wanted to give. And the father takes his son up into his arms and holds him tight. He doesn't even wait to hear the end of the speech that the son was given. And he lavishes him with blessings. This prodigal father is reckless in dishing out mercy and love in squandering and wasteful proportions. Forgiveness and reconciliation comes with no strings attached. It was nothing that the son earned or even deserved. It was all a gift from the father period. And that's when the problem started, right? 
Because as great as a gift of grace is for the one receiving the gift, for everyone else, it smacks as being not fair. Enter character three in our story. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. The servant replied, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he got him back safe and sound. Then the older brother became angry and refused to go in. We don't, know how, we don't know how much time has passed between when the younger brother insulted the family name and left town. But ever since then, the older brother has had to shoulder the burden of the family business. Was this guy upset that his little brother returned? Maybe not so much. What seems to have really upset him was the fact that the father is throwing a party for his irresponsible brother. Verse 28, his father came out and began to plead with him, but the son answered his father, listen, for all these years, I've been working like a slave for you, and I've, I've never disobeyed your command, yet you've never even given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. So here's where it all comes out now, right? Here is where we get to the bottom. When did being responsible become a detriment, right? Whatever happened to having to face the consequences of one's actions? That's what the older brother wants to know. Barbara Brown Taylor, one of my favorite contemporary preachers, says it's at this point in the story that the father realizes he has lost two sons. One to a lifestyle of reckless living, but the other to an even worse fate. A life of angry self-righteousness. You might even make the claim that the older brother's journey has taken him farther away from the father than the younger brothers ever did. So how does our prodigal father respond? Verse 31. Then the father said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and he has been found. J. Ellsworth Callis in his book, Parables from the Backside, writes this. One more word about, there we are, there we go. One more word about the older brother. And perhaps it's the worst of all. He didn't know his father. He had grown up under his father's kindness and love, yet somehow he never seemed to understand him. That's such a powerful statement, don't you think? He never knew his father. Let's go back to what the father said uh, to his eldest son. Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. Now, this was completely true. Remember way back in the beginning of the story when the younger brother asked for his share of the inheritance? He came asking his father, and the Bible says that his father divided the property between them. Between them. It's not like he just gave the younger son his share and kept the other one for when he died and gave the older son. No, he divided his property between them. And in biblical days, it's not a 50-50 split amongst your kids or an even split. The oldest boys, oldest sons, were so valued in uh, the ancient Near East that they got a double share. So if you've got three boys, your oldest son gets half, your middle and younger sons get a fourth. In this case, the father has two sons. His oldest son would get two-thirds of the property. The younger son would get the other third. 
When the father divided his property amongst his sons, he, in effect, was giving up his role as the head of the household. When he gave away the property, he gave away the authority that came with the household. Now it all resided in the hands of the oldest son. So for that very same son to say to his father, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you've never even given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. He doesn't get it. Because the father has already given him everything. If he wanted to slaughter a goat or a fatted calf, or heck, if he wanted to slaughter the whole herd of cattle, he could have done so because all of it was already his. All he had to do was accept and recognize that his father had given it to him. Now, the oldest son obviously didn't realize this incredible reservoir of love that dwelled within his father. And we have to wonder, how could he have missed it, right? I mean, it's not like this party for the youngest brother was the first time that the father expressed any kind of love and grace. Surely, as they were growing up as children, as teenagers, even as young adults, there have been many times that the father would have showed how much he loved both of his children. And yet, the son never picked up on it. Never, never understood that. So it comes as a complete surprise when he sees it expressed in a party given for his brother that had been lost. Now, how could he not have known that his own value and worth in the eyes of his father was not dependent upon what he did or didn't do for his dad? His value was simply that he was a son of the father. That was it. Just like his father's love for his younger brother came, not because what he did or what he said, but because he was also his son. A love that was unconditional and filled with grace. Robert Capon in his book, The Parables of Grace, relates this parable to the Christian sacrament of baptism. And I think he does so in a very powerful way. He writes this. We are forgiven in baptism... Not only for the sins committed before baptism, but for a whole lifetime of sins yet to come. We're forgiven before, during, and after our sins. And we're forgiven for one reason only. Because Jesus died for our sins and rose for our justification. The sheer brilliance of infant baptism is manifest most of all in the fact that babies can do absolutely nothing to earn, accept, or believe in forgiveness. So the church, in baptizing them, simply declares that they have it. We're not forgiven, therefore, because we made ourselves forgivable or even because we have faith. We are forgiven solely because there is a forgiver. I love that line. We're forgiven solely because there is a forgiver. That's the kind of unconditional love and grace that the older son grew up with in his father. He spent his entire life with that, and he never even recognized it. We had to celebrate and rejoice, Dad says, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. And that's how Jesus ends the story. We don't know if the older brother, who seems just as lost as the younger brother used to be, ever finds himself and ever comes back into the family and recognizes the gift But I think the power of this story is it's not about being good or doing the right thing or even making ourselves acceptable to the Father. It's about recognizing and receiving the gift that's already been given to us, that that we're nothing without God. 
and, and giving up the ridiculous notion that we have anything to do with the love, grace, and forgiveness that comes to us from above. Now, some of us today know that we uh, wear the shoes of the younger brother or younger sister. We've made choices in life that we're not proud of. We've hurt people close to us. We've run away from relationships that we probably should have stayed with. And we've been focused on ourselves uh, more than anyone else in our lives. But the message of Luke 15 is that there's still hope. No one is so far gone that God cannot bring back with redemption and grace and forgiveness. That God is actively searching for our way home, not waiting for us to get it right. Then others of us today are more like the older brother. We've tried to live a faithful life, fulfilling our responsibilities and always doing the right things. But in our effort to do right, maybe, just maybe, we've missed out on being in a relationship with an amazing God. We're so caught up in being good and not breaking the rules that we miss the party that God wants to throw in our honor as well. We've been given so much by God. How disappointing would it be to never experience the love and the grace to the fullest extent? We serve a prodigal God, friends who is reckless, extravagant, overflowing, unconstrained, who pours out love, grace, and forgiveness. A celebration has been made for all of us, no matter where our journeys have taken us. May we reflect that same unconstrained love, grace, and forgiveness to others. God has given us everything. There is no shortage of God's blessings. We don't have to hold on to it to ourselves. We can freely release it because more is coming. How can we not share it with others? May it be so with all of us today and every day. Thanks be to God.